Please turn with me to Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1, our text will be verses 4 to 15. There is much description that is given here of this judgment that is being brought against Nineveh. As we remember, Nahum really is a continuation of Jonah. As Jonah was sent to Nineveh in about the mid-century B.C., and through his preaching, the Ninevites had repented, and now this is probably close to a hundred years later. And the prophet Nahum, as we don't have much information as to who he was, his pedigree, any of that stuff, his family, all we know from him or from the Scripture is that he is the Elkishite, perhaps a city that is in Galilee. He is raised up by the Lord now to pronounce judgment against Nineveh. This is, this is really what Jonah was desiring Though at the time that Jonah was preaching, it was for their uh, it was for their salvation that God was extending grace to them. And now we see a hundred years later, Nahum is pronouncing judgment. And we had talked about last week that there comes a period of time that God's grace is ended. God's grace is not infinite. We serve an infinite God, but His grace is not infinite when it comes toward. The unbelieving. At God's appointed time, His grace will end and then He will pour out judgment. And this is, this is what we're finding here in this book, this very small book. We have this very vivid descriptions that are given to us here that are describing God's power and His might. His authority over all the created order. We, we learn that as the Lord has purposed to act, that... None can stay His hand. None can be saved. None can save themselves. None can avoid the wrath of God. How can any escape? That's, that's really the question that's being presented to us, is how can any escape the wrath of God when He has purposed to act against them? And that's what we're finding here. This, this mighty empire of Assyria, one of the great empires of history, is now getting ready to be leveled. And it's going to be done by a sovereign act of God. That in bringing down this empire that has taken the northern kingdom already, as you remember in 722 B.C., this is when Assyria came in and had taken the northern kingdom of Israel. All the ten tribes of the northern part of Israel and deported them out, planted new people in into the land. Uh, This is is a mighty empire that many, many feared. And, And the sovereign God is getting ready to act against them and to bring them down. His power is presented to us here in His might. His authority over all. His sovereign decree, when it goes forth, It will accomplish everything that He has intended to do. And none can escape from His hand. And it's oftentimes that when you're looking in the Old Testament and you're seeing these judgments of God and you're seeing how God has purposed to do something and He brings it about, that this is really giving us a picture of what's going to happen at the end. That when God has purposed to act against the unbelieving world, that there are none that can stay His hand. None can thwart His will. Through these particular acts within history, He is showing His power against mankind, even the mighty empires that have been in existence throughout the beginning. We think of some of the great empires. We think of Assyria. We think of Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. There are many others. And what has happened to them when God has purposed to bring them down? It occurred just as God had intended. And this will, this will indeed be what occurs at the end of the age when the Lord is raised up against the unbelieving. And yet within this, this, this whole vivid description that is given to us here, yet we find some very interesting words when it comes to the Lord 
uh, uh, or from the Lord, rather, toward His people. That they can take comfort in remembering that the Lord is good. We find that in verse 7. Among, amidst all this, this graphic descriptions of his, of his judgment, we read right in the middle that the Lord is good. And that is a source of comfort for the people of God. To remember that the Lord is good and that He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. It reminds us that the only way of escape and the only way that mankind has ever extended grace is through Christ, the means that God Himself has provided. No other means are in existence, but it is through Christ and through Christ alone that man can escape the wrath of God. Much of that is pictured here in, in this and this chapter that is giving us such such graphic details, description of the judgment that will come upon Assyria. So I pray that the Lord would use this in order to encourage our hearts as we work our way through it. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> this is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. We will begin in verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world, and all, its, and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, <clears throat> He will make a complete end of its sight, and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns, and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed, as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break its yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Let's pray together. Father, we again come before you to reflect upon your character, your nature, your mighty attributes, that we can have a greater understanding of who you are and the salvation that you have provided in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, let your word go forth, accomplishing all you desire in us, and may our hearts be encouraged and strengthened by what we go over this evening. I pray that the Spirit of God would do a mighty work within all of us here. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so here's the judgment of God. This is upon a place that He had once, as we have seen before, showed grace to. He extended grace the grace that he extended to this city had lasted even beyond the particular generation that had first received the salvation. It wasn't as if the Lord had uh, allowed this people to come to faith through the preaching of Jonah, and then when the next generation began to move away from him, it's not as if he brought judgment then. The Lord had, had, had waited. He was patient. He was long-suffering. 
to where you're, you're almost, over, actually over a hundred years later, depending on when the book was dated here. The Lord had given that much time, had been gracious to them, withholding His judgment until His appointed time when His grace would end. <clears throat> that, is, that is an important thing to note here. Is that while the unbelieving, the unbelieving world as a whole you could look at uh, take, takes for granted the grace of God and that everything continues as it was prior to uh, in, the, in the ages past, a time will come in which the Lord will say, My grace is ended, and now only judgment. We pray that God's grace will be extended and continue, that He would continue to tarry in order that those whom we know and those whom we love might come to faith if it be His will. But His appointed time will come, and none can thwart His hand. You think of. You think of how merciful that he has been throughout this over over a hundred years here that he has been to this this city that is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. He has been truly gracious. And what have they done? They have spurned his grace. They have sought after their own gods. They've sought after their own devices, and have not remembered the. The mercy that was shown to them during the days of Jonah. That's with every generation, it seems, in different parts of the world. You see how God has given common grace to even the unbelieving. That God has extended that common grace even to those who are adamant against Him. He allows them to prosper, He allows them to have good lives. He is kind to them. And yet their time will come in which His kindness will end. His kindness is not infinite toward the unbelieving. His common grace is not infinite toward the unbelieving. His patience only goes so far. And you think of how things are within our own country, of how things have changed so drastically within the last 50 years. Some things for the better, some things for the worst. How long will it go on? We don't know. Will the Lord intervene? Will the Lord act? Will the Lord allow revival to come into the nation? True revival. I'm not talking about plan, you know, plan revival. Revival is not we're going to plan next September to, to have five days of services or whatever. That's not revival. Revival is when you have a true moving of the Holy Spirit of God where people are being converted. You think of the Great Awakening through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, the Wesleys, of how, how the colonies were just changed so drastically. Being converted to the Gospel. The people that would come to hear them preach, uh, it was amazing. I think in George Whitfield's biography by Arnold Dalimore, George Whitfield was good friends with Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin, being a scientist as he was, he, wanted, he tried to get an estimate on how many people were coming out to see Whitfield because Whitfield was one of the open-air preachers. And so he had, he had started he had, where Whitfield was preaching. He began to walk so many blocks down until he finally got to the end how wide the crowd was, all of this, and estimated that there had to have been up to close to 30,000 people that had come to hear George Whitfield preach. That's amazing to, to think of that. But this is, a moving, this is a true moving of the Spirit of God in which He is converting people and bringing them to faith. And when God so moves, His, His intended result will occur. Can God do that now? Absolutely He can do that now, but... It, but He uses faithful people in order to do it. Perhaps He will. Then again, maybe He won't. Maybe He is, he is, getting, he is getting toward the end of, of His patience, His kindness. Who knows what the Lord will do, but whatever He intends to do, He will accomplish. And that's what you're finding here. 
that God the Creator is making war. And here He is making war against Nineveh on a grander scale against Assyria. Listen to this language here. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of Him. The hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence, the world and all, of, and all the inhabitants in it. I mean, you think of this language here. Why, why this, this, this language? <clears throat> One, it is showing us the power and the might of God. That this isn't just any particular enemy that has risen up against Nineveh or Assyria as a whole. This isn't a human enemy in which they might have a chance. You think of the the language here of the hills and the mountains dissolving. You think of 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 the the, the rivers drying up and all of this. I mean, what's what's this language supposed to do? If you if you have been near a, a, a large river and you see the the mighty rapids of it, or you stand before a a huge mountain and you see the heights of this mountain, or you're standing at the ocean and you see. Just the vastness of the ocean, it is intimidating. It's intimidating to stand before these things of nature. It's intimidating to many, obviously. Humans, we're just small compared to this. He's talking about the rocks here. The rocks are broken up by Him. That's in verse 6. He's talking about boulders. He's talking about rocky walls. This isn't just talking about small rocks. Why that language? Because these are the very things that when man stands before, intimidate us. Because they're so huge. The mountains, the sea, the raging water. And this language is given to convey that not even these things that intimidate man intimidate God. Because He is even greater than any of these. And so when the Lord has risen up, these things that, that intimidate man or perhaps even cause fear, they quake in light of Him. They dissolve in light of Him. They dry up in light of Him. This is showing the might and the power and the majesty of the One who is coming to make war. And what it is doing is giving a sense of hopelessness really to the one that He has risen up against. If nature dissolves, or as even as the book of Revelation says, that the sky is rolled up like a scroll at His presence, what is man compared to Him when He has risen up against you? That's the language that's being used here in order to strike fear into the Ninevites. This isn't just a human army. This isn't just a man-made army that has risen up over here to come against you. This is, this is the sovereign king. This is the sovereign Lord. And so the question is there. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken up by Him. In light of all of that language, there's the question. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can stand before Him when He has risen up in anger? This is to strike fear into the hearts of the people. To give that sense of dread of the One who is coming. That all things that intimidate man and overwhelms man is nothing compared to the strong and the mighty Lord. who can stand before His indignation? Can any endure? Can any escape? That's, That's really what's being given there. And the answer is none. None can escape. None can withhold the judgment. That's the point. You think of the psalmist in Psalm 73. The psalmist who initially began to envy the wicked because 
of the lives that they had lived. Listen to the language. I'll just read it. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is in their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore His people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Now this is Him recounting God's common grace that is extended to the unbelieving world. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now this is, <clears throat> this is the psalmist. This is a psalm of Asaph who is looking at the wicked seeing how they prosper, seeing how they live, and considering his own self of the struggles that he goes through him throughout his own life. And so he says, I was almost envious of them. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you guide me. And afterward receive me to glory. Whom have, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God, I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. <clears throat> this is a world that has spurned the grace of God and taken the grace of God for granted until the time in which he awakes, if you will, using the language of the psalmist. This is what is happening here in Nahum. That the Ninevites have taken for granted God's grace that as they had started into their idolatry again, nothing occurs and so they continue on through it. Nothing occurs. They're prospering. Everything is going well. So the Lord is not going to do anything. Is there knowledge with Him? Does He really know? Until the Lord rises up. And none can stay his hand. Yet at the very same time as you see the Lord making war against the unbelieving, you have this this little pause in verse 7 to give encouragement to the people of God. He says, "The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him." That the Lord is good, that he is he is kind. He is the word actually means benign. He's gentle and kindly. In light of all the other language before it, you have him saying here that the Lord is good. Gentle. Kind. And He is a refuge for those, or He knows those who take refuge in Him. A refuge meaning a fortified place 
a place of safety, a place of protection. For those who, who seek Him, He is a place of protection for them. Protection from what? Protection from His wrath. From His anger against sin. Now that was given to the people of God because at the time that Nahum is writing this, that Assyria has taken the northern kingdom, but Assyria has also been trying to take Judah, the southern kingdom. As Hezekiah had to deal with Assyria and others. And the Lord is speaking through the prophet to say, judgment's coming on them, but you be comforted. I'm going to break their shackles from you. And that reiteration of all of the struggles that the people of God had went through thus far by the hand of the Ninevites, Assyria, he reminds them that he is kind and he is gentle. He's a place of, of protection for you. Remember this. Reflect upon this. Take, take encouragement here. Take comfort in this. And that is... That, that is central to everything else that is being said here. To understand this. That though He makes war against the unbelieving, He makes war against those who hate Him, yet for those who love Him, He is a place of their protection. How can that be? How can it be? Anger is poured out on others while grace and love are extended to a different group because they have sought Him. They have approached Him in the way that He has said to approach Him. He is indeed a Savior to those who seek Him as it is with us. This is no different. It's the same. We're dealing with the same God who Nahum is referring to here. And the very things that Nahum is saying to the people of God then is the very same things that he says to us here. To remind you that even in the struggles or whatever occurs from the unbelieving toward you, that the Lord is good to you. He is gentle and He is kind. He is a place of protection. And this has been granted to you through the only means of that protection, which is Christ. Christ is your protection. Christ is your shield. Christ is your fortress. He is your place of refuge because it is only in Him that we are saved from the wrath of God towards sin. As we sing often that He is my one defense, my righteousness. That's, that's Christ. You know, the very thing that I think we often miss <clears throat> that, is, that has really been a great reminder to me lately, is that, that the, the very things that we receive of within the gospel is not just the benefits of the gospel, but Christ is the benefit of the gospel. It's not this, or it's not this, it's Him. He's, he's the benefit of it all. You receive Him. You are found in Him. And when you are found in Him, you will find that the Lord is good. He is your place of refuge. He is your one defense. And He is your righteousness. You know, why is it that the Lord is bringing this great judgment against them in the first place? Because they're unrighteous. And you're seeing there the very holiness of God that is being set before your eyes because God is holy that His justice cries out against sin. He's altogether righteous in what is right, but to punish sin. And so as Nineveh has turned back to their idols, the justice of the Lord is right. But the means that God has provided for the unrighteous is Christ. And that's why He, is, uh, he alone is our place of protection. So you have that, that small... Look, verse that is there just to remind the people of God of the blessing that they have received in Him. And in your time of trouble, this is your reminder. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold. He is a refuge. For those who, take, for those who call upon Him, for those who seek His face. Now, 
he continues on with language going back to the wicked. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sights and will pursue his enemies into darkness. That is expressing that very truth, none will escape. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Whatever you devise against the Lord. You know, Jonathan Edwards in the sermon that many of us have listened to or many of us have read, probably his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. As Jonathan Edwards is speaking in the place of the wicked, he says that even the wicked would say that I, as they are in hell, that I never intended to come here. I thought that my plan was sound. I thought, I thought that I, I would miss it because I was, I was so sure of my plan until death suddenly took me. That there is no place that the wicked can hide, that the unbelieving can hide, that God will not find them. You're talking about a, a, a God who is infinite in knowledge and power and wisdom, who is omnipresent in all these things that we speak of when it comes to the very nature and character attributes of God. This is indeed a sense of hopelessness here. That whatever it is that you, that you try to plan, that you, that you can either live longer or you try to plan that somehow you think that you're going to avoid the judgment of God, it will fail. It will not work. I think it's, it was kind of funny at one time, especially leading up to the, the whole Y2K thing. If you remember how many people uh, like Jack Van Impey and some of these other um, dispensational guys were, were continually emphasizing that you know, when Y2K comes, it's going to be the start of, of the tribulation and, and, and you know, the rapture and all of this sort of thing coming. And people were stockpiling all kinds of stuff and weapons. and, and <laughs> It was crazy. As if they thought that by doing so, that if the tribulation happened, and it's interesting preparing for something of the God you don't even believe in, that if it did happen, that they would be prepared. They would have weapons. They would have food. And this is where you think of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, why are the nations devising a vain thing? The Lord laughs at them. He scoffs at them. They are like small grasshoppers to Him. I mean, that, that's emphasizing just, just how great and mighty that He is. He, he finds whom He desires to find. When it's time that death will overcome them, it will occur. No matter how great that you think that your health is, no matter what precautions that you have taken to try to live longer, no matter if you're a hermit inside of a house that you don't want to go anywhere because you're afraid of everything, when death comes, you will not be able to escape. Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. That's what He's saying. Like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed. Likening that to God pouring out His wrath upon them. They're, they're done. He's intended to do it, and it's going to occur. That's the point. Now, <clears throat> he adds in here, though they are at full strength, and likewise many, doesn't matter how mighty that their men are, how, how great is their army, even so, they will be cut off and pass away. It doesn't matter what man does. That's the whole point. 
It doesn't matter. What, what things he, he attempts to do, that's why when you see in the book of Revelation, and, and you see how the, the beast and the false prophet, they, uh, through the workings of Satan, they gather the nations against the Lord. What does the Lord do? All he has to do is speak. He speaks, and they're consumed. Total annihilation. He didn't have to do anything else. He really didn't even have to speak. He could have just... And it would have accomplished the same thing. Why? Because this is an infinitely powerful God that none can compare to. Nothing on earth, nothing in existence compares to Him. The great and the mighty God who doesn't grow tired, who doesn't get weary, but remains at His full strength and power constantly. That's the God that we're speaking of here. The Lord who is strong and mighty. So even if they are at full strength, and likewise many, they will be cut off and pass away. Then he speaks again to the people of God. What is this intended to do for the people of God, for Judah? If they have been oppressed by this particular people... We read of a number of different uh, kings of Assyria that had led their armies to Judah. The one during the time of Hezekiah led his army to Judah. And that night, one angel, as is recorded in 2 Kings, killed 185,000 of them. Just one. One angel. But they had come to Judah's doorstep a number of times causing difficulties trying to conquer them making war against them and so the Lord speaks to them the Lord has allowed this to occur for a time and then the Lord says though I have afflicted you I will afflict you no longer the time is coming not only for the, for the wicked and that their time will end, but for the believing, the people of God who are being afflicted by them. A time is coming that I will end your affliction. Now this is, this is language that perhaps we, we don't fully understand because the most that ever happens to any of us here in America is being slandered, what called names maybe. Something along that line. We're not like those who are in other parts of the world who die every day because they bear the title Christian. We don't know that kind of affliction. When you begin to think about this, it's difficult for us to understand that, but the most persecuted people on earth are Christians. In every nation, being persecuted in many of them, being beheaded, being martyred, having the churches burned. I ain't going to tell you what all other things that they do that are just horrendous things to Christians. We don't know that kind of affliction. But what we can rest assured is that for our brothers and sisters in Christ that endure that affliction, that the Lord says at His appointed time, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. Afflictions come, trials come, all of that stuff come in order to test our faith, to grow our faith. All of that we have to endure much time, various forms of suffering in order to have our faith to grow in Christ as the Lord shapes us and molds us. But a time, He says, will come, well, I will afflict you no longer. I will break His yoke from upon you. I will tear off your shackles. At God's appointed time, he would, he would do that for His people Judah, which He did. 
But he says back to them, The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. It will no longer be sown. It will no longer bear fruit. That's the idea. You'll no longer be fruitful. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. That's, that's the Lord's words to those that will endure the judgment of God. Those are dreadful words. Words especially for, for us who, who have even an inkling of the majesty and the glory of God. That even causes a certain kind of a terror, fear in us, considering what they will endure. Knowing that we won't, but just considering who's bringing this judgment, it even strikes a little bit of fear in us, considering them. You think of this. In Revelation chapter 7, you have a very interesting thing that is going on there. You have the Lord that has poured out His wrath in chapter 6. <clears throat> in chapter 6, <clears throat> we read beginning of verse 12. I looked when He broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of, its, out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said... And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. Who is able to stand? That is so reminiscent of what we're reading here. But, here's what it goes on to say. As the judgment is poured out in chapter 6, you have the saints that are now in heaven. In verse 9 of chapter 7 after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of, water, of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes." This is a time in which the saints are in heaven after being oppressed or persecuted or going through whatever the wicked had dealt out to them. They are now in heaven. They are victorious standing before the throne of God and God has wiped away every tear. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. They are the victorious ones. And that's why the, the language that is here is one of Dread for the unbelieving, terror, and yet at the very same time, he ends this chapter with, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah, pay your vows, for never again will the wicked ones pass through you. He is cut off completely. How is that good news? It's good news. Because when you go back to verse 7, the Lord is good. 
And anything that the Lord does, you can rest assured of this very truth, this very reality. Whatever occurs, the Lord is good. That's why you have to preach that back to yourself. A couple of weeks ago when we were at the the funeral of a young man who we went to church with 11, 12 years ago, 28 years old, died. One of the very things that, that I wanted to try to do for this family was to remind them as I began to tell them, remember this, the Lord is good. Don't lose sight of this, that the Lord is good. And He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. That's the good news. In light of all the bad, here's the good news. The Lord is gentle and He is kind. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is all of these these great uh, descriptions of His grace. He is all of these to those who take refuge in Him. That's the good news. That's why this passage is, is quoted in Romans. This is good news that the Lord is good. It's good news for us on this side of the cross to be reminded that the Lord has provided a way. He has provided the only way. That, that the wicked, no matter how vile that we may think that they are, or you have even the more moral, unbelieving, or whatever, regardless of what state that they're in, while they still have breath in their lungs, from our perspective, there should always be hope for them. And that's why we pray. That's why, that's why we, we, we share the gospel because this is the good news. Though this is, this is you're, you're under the wrath of God at this particular time, but here's the good news that Christ has come that you may have life. And He is your source of protection. He is your safety. So flee to Him. That's good news. That's why when Paul quotes this, he says, How blessed are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. It's dreadful when you're thinking of these other, these other things when the Lord has, has risen up against the wicked to pour out His judgment. But the good news is, is that Christ has come that you may avoid that judgment. That's why the people of God are to celebrate. That's why the people of God are to rejoice in Him. Because the question really comes back to not, as R.C. Sproul would say, it's not about, Lord, how can you extend grace to these and not those over there? The question really is, Lord, we're so thankful that you extended grace to any of us. That's, that's where we should be. Thank you for showing grace to any of us. And that's good news. Because there still is hope. There's still hope for all those whom we love. There's hope for those that, that as of right now, perhaps that are in our lives, whether friends or family, that right now they ignore the grace of God. They go their own way, whatever. But there's still hope. There's still hope for them because the Lord is good. And He is their source of protection. Ultimately, we rejoice in the Lord because the time in which when He does make all things right on the grand scale, that He will wipe away every tear. And perhaps in, in the time in which that occurs, as, as the song that we have sung before that in the time in which this occurs that we're standing in heaven and God is wiping every tear that we will remember this and reflect upon that every tear that we ever shed was worth it in light of this. God is so gracious and so merciful that He still gives time. So use our time wisely. And that at the end, thinking of the end, considering the end, that God will make all things right. That is to be an encouragement to us as well.
as we see so many things wrong. God is not idle. He is not indifferent. At His appointed time, He will set all things right. In the meantime, let us do our part in order to give the good news, announce the good news, announce the good news of peace while we have opportunity. The Lord is your stronghold. So preach to others that He can be their stronghold as well. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank You for our time together. Thank You for Your Word. And Father, may we all be encouraged by it. May it cultivate in us a, a greater commitment to try to reach those whom we love, our friends and family. And we pray, Father, that as we do, that You would do a mighty work in their hearts as we cannot accomplish anything in them. We can't give them uh, just a, a great argument to convince them. We can't speak so eloquently that they would desire You. It is all in Your power. Only You can convert hearts. Only You can give eyes to the spiritually blind. We rely on You. And we pray, Father, if it be Your will, that You would allow us to be fruitful among those whom we know that are not in the faith. Whatever the situation would be, Father, the outcome, we know that You are good. And we know that the judge of all the earth will do right. Let us rest in that and be encouraged in that. Father, help us to remember these truths and remember what good news that we have received ourselves. We love You. We give You all the praise and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Now like God's children said, Amen. Thank you for your attention, and you are dismissed.